Well, please turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to John chapter 11. Another beautiful passage from the Gospel of John. It's John chapter 11, page 897 in your pew Bible, if you're looking for that. Over the last few weeks, we've been taking a stab at some massive chunks of Scripture. We've been looking at entire chapters, and these chapters are long, and they're well-developed, and, and the stories in them are incredible. And we're going to look at another entire chapter this morning. It's about five sermons worth of stuff. So we're going to just have to take the tour bus view of John chapter 11. And I'm not even going to read the entire chapter. I'm going to read portions of it, and I'll tell you where we are as we go along. But we're going to start where you should start, in verse 1. So let's pick it up now. John 11, beginning in verse 1. This is what the Gospel writer John says. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, the one whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now skip down with me to verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give to you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And now skip down to verse 32 with me. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? 
So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. And now verse 53. So from that day on, they, and they would be referring to the chiefs, priests, and the Pharisees, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Amen. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word to us this morning. We pray that he would write its eternal truth upon all of our hearts. Well, I think a few months ago I told many of you about how Rebecca, my wife, likes to buy things and return them. We, we bought 20 different lamps for our living room, returned all but one. It's just one of the things she likes to do. She buys things and returns them. We're looking at a story this morning about the only person in the history of the world who died, goes to heaven, is just settling in, he's enjoying the hope of glory, he's enjoying paradise, a, a place where there's no sin, there's no darkness, there's no pain, there's no death, none of that. And four days later, he gets returned. That's not a good day. When I go to heaven, I want to stay there. But Lazarus ends up getting sent back from God. He gets sent back for a purpose. It's an amazing story. This is an amazing story. It's really almost unbelievable, except for the fact that scores of people saw this happen. I mean, you would not typically believe that a man could raise another man who had been dead for four days, but this happened and everybody believed it because so many people saw it. People saw Lazarus walking around after they had already gone to his funeral, after they already knew that he was in the grave, dead as could be, body cold, body blue, and he's risen again. It takes more faith not to believe that this happened than it actually did purely because of the sheer number of people that, that saw this happen and believed it. Even Jesus' most fierce opponents are seeing this, and they're seeing all the other signs that he has performed, and they're saying that he has to be stopped because these signs that actually happen are threatening what they have already decided that they want for themselves. So we have every reason in the world to believe that Jesus Christ actually did come to this man named Lazarus one day about 2,000 years ago and actually raised him from the dead. That He actually got out of that tomb and walked out of it. There was a strange superstition that many Jewish people believed in this time from one of their holy books, another holy book outside of the Bible called the Talmud. And what they believed is that after a person died, the soul hovered over their body for three days. But after three days, they were completely dead. There was no ambiguity. They were dead. They were not rising again. They were not coming back. And that's where Lazarus is. The doctors have pronounced the time of death. He's been wrapped up in the burial clothes and he's been put in a tomb. Many of you can think of nothing more painful than 
losing someone who is very dear to you, a spouse, a child, a parent, a friend. And losing is a very appropriate word to use because you have lost them. They are no longer in your life. You've experienced great loss. And there's, an, there's a sense in which in our relationships with one another, especially with those within our family, those who we deeply, deeply love, when they die, we have experienced a measure of loss even in, of our own selves. We feel like a part of us is missing because they're gone. We have lost them. Well, that's what's going on in Mary's heart and in Martha's heart. Even in in Jesus' disposition to some extent, that's going on as well. And the pain of death is even worse, it's even more acute when you realize that perhaps something could have been done to prevent it. If something could have been done to prevent this death, when death happens and it's premature, there's something especially troubling about that. There's something especially troubling about any kind of suffering that we have. It doesn't even have to be death. It can be any kind of suffering that we have. And we see that something could have been done to prevent that suffering. If only they weren't driving drunk. If if only my child weren't born with that disability. If only I wouldn't have said that to her. If only I were married to somebody else. If only Jesus would have shown up. We live our lives in the if-onlys so often. That characterizes us. And Martha and Mary, both of them, are are speaking a sense of that if-only mentality here. We see it in verse 21 and from Mary in verse 32. Both of them say this to Jesus. They say, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. Look beneath those words. There's faith there. There is faith there. That's not an unbelieving comment. There is a belief that if Jesus had actually been there, that He was sovereign and powerful and loving and merciful and compassionate enough to have taken this person who was already dead and brought Him back to physical life. And so they believe that Jesus has the power over that, that He's sovereign over these circumstances. But another sentiment underneath those words is disappointment. It's hurt. It's sadness. It's grief. There's an intensity of pain that says, Jesus, my little brother would not have died if you would have been here and you would have done something about it. That's what's coming out of these sisters here. In ministry, part and parcel of what you do is you spend time with people over the lunch table, in the office, in their living room, mourning with them, grieving with them over the effects of a fallen world happening in their life. It can be the effects of their own sin. It can be the the ways in which they have been sinned against. It can be just the world falling apart just because things are broken. Doesn't, you don't have to be a Christian to see that. That's just the reality of life. Things are broken. And it brings grief and it grieves, brings pain and sorrow. And I've grieved with you. And so often, in our moments of grief and in your moments of tears, people will apologize to me for tearing up. 
They'll apologize to me for letting the sorrow and the pain of their life somehow come out of them in a way in which they didn't seem to be able to control. They apologize for that. Because somewhere along the way in your Christianity, you were told that a real Christian is one who sucks it up, who's always hopeful, who's got that Botox smile just gleaming from ear to ear on your life in the midst of horrible things. And let me tell you something. That's not Christianity. Nowhere is that in the Bible. That's not Christianity. That is Stoicism. That is third century pagan Greek nonsense. It's Buddhism. It's Confucianism. But it's not Christianity. Christianity gives you the freedom. It gives you the liberty to grieve things that you should grieve. To grieve brokenness. To grieve death. There's something wrong with you if you don't grieve those things. And the reason why you have permission to do it is because Jesus was standing at the grave of His dearly beloved friend. And He bawled His eyes out. If that's good enough for Jesus, my friends, that's good enough for you. You have the freedom to do that. Because death tells you that there's something wrong. A fractured relationship tells you that this isn't how it was supposed to be. There was supposed to be something different. My relationships were supposed to be whole, but they're broken now. Sickness tells you that this isn't normal. That's what that pain in your body tells you. Something's not right. So you can grieve that. And you need to have the permission to do it because I want you to think about it with this imagery in the back of your mind. If you have a boiling pot of water on the stove and the steam is coming up, it's doing what it's supposed to do when water boils, if you try to suppress that steam and you put the lid on top and you smash it down, what's going to happen? The water's going to rise to the top, it's going to billow over, and you're going to have a big, huge, watery mess all over the place. And my friends, if you don't allow yourself to grieve, If you suppress that, if you put the lid on top of your pain when you should be experiencing pain, there's going to be something else that comes out. Far messier. It'll be a callousness. It'll be a coldness. It'll be a cynicism about the way things are. Jesus gives you that liberty to grieve in those times. And that reality right there tells us something beautiful about Jesus, doesn't it? It tells you something about Jesus that's absolutely stunning. And it tells you this. It tells you that He was entirely human. That He became nothing, took on the form of a servant, and took on human flesh, dwelled among us, dealt with the things that we deal with, was tempted in every way as we are, and yet is without sin. He was truly human. And so when joyful things happen to people... He celebrates it. We see it in John chapter 2, right? Where there's a wedding. It's a time of celebration. Everybody's drinking wine. They're having a great time. And Jesus is there to celebrate that. But we also see that in times of that grief, at the death of a friend, that Jesus is there and He's mourning. He's grieving. He's weeping. When you got married, Christian, and you had children, Jesus was rejoicing with you. 
and when you lost your parents to cancer or some other tragedy struck your life, Jesus was there mourning with you. We've seen this over and over. He's always going before us. He's always taking our sin and our pain upon Himself. And my friends, you need to see this about Jesus in His full humanity. He is the supreme counselor of your soul. The supreme counselor of your soul. A good counselor and a good friend doesn't just come to you with good advice and doesn't just take a Bible verse, rip it off, and slap it onto your problem. A good friend doesn't just come to you in truth, although they do that. But you know what a good friend and a good counselor does? He also offers you His presence. And Jesus offers you His presence. He's actually there. He's not abandoning you in the midst of the darkness. He's there. He's given you His Holy Spirit. He is there with you personally. Not just intellectually, but He's there personally with you in the midst of your pain. Jesus grieves with you. But the thing about Jesus is that He is not just an emotional sap, a a sentimental weepy, emotional basket case here. Because we see something else in Jesus in this passage as well in His response to Lazarus' death. And what we see is that there is a holy ferociousness coming out here. Jesus is mad. In verse 33, Jesus is with Mary and Martha and He is next to Lazarus' dead body. And John writes that Jesus was deeply moved in His spirit and greatly troubled. It's hard to see it in the English language, but if you notice the actual Greek, the original language in which this was written, you'll notice that Jesus was angry. He stood at the side of Lazarus' grave and He was outraged at this when the storm came through and turned your house into nothing but a concrete slab, it made Jesus angry. When someone that you love died unexpectedly from some accident, some disease, some ugly thing that happened, it outraged Jesus. Jesus is outraged at pain and suffering in this world. He hates racism. He hates the fact that 100,000 unborn children every day across the world are sucked out of their mother's wombs. It makes him angry to see the presence of evil in the world that he created. And he created it good. And death is one of those things. If you feel angry at the death of someone that you love, you're feeling a many picture of what Jesus feels when He sees the ugliness and the evil that is present in the world. It's hard for us to even grasp this, my friends. It's hard for us to grasp this because many of our favorite news channels has this feature called Around the World in 80 Seconds. And so in 80 seconds, less than a minute and a half, you see a a civil war in Sri Lanka, a famine in Africa, a flood in Honduras, Great soccer fans in the Netherlands. You see all sorts of injustice and ugliness and evil going on in the world, and you don't even have a minute and a half to digest it. 
It doesn't move us. And these things are destroying people's lives permanently for generations. And when Jesus sees that, it angers Him. It angers Him because He's perfectly holy and there's a presence of evil in the world that He created. And so the emotions that you feel at death and pain and suffering, they're not perfectly sanctified. They're not perfect. Our emotions are as broken as any other thing in our life. But it is evidence that you've been created in the image of God who feels something of what you feel when He sees that. Now here's another thing you need to see about Jesus. Not only is humanity, but you need to see that He is fully man, but He is fully God. Th- those two things, full humanity and full deity, come together in the person of Jesus Christ. And the fact that He is fully God is what can temper those emotions, to make it not rule you, not be the governing reality of your life, because you know that this God that you worship is sovereign over those circumstances. They did not happen out of His control. Jesus was not sitting there with a perspiring upper lip, freaking out about what He was going to do when tragedy struck your life. That all happened under the scope of His providence. In verse 14, we see something of this. Look at what Jesus says here in verse 14. He says, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. This is a strange thing to read. Jesus was informed that Lazarus was about to die. And Jesus waits two days before he goes to see Lazarus. If one of you called me and said, Darren, I have someone that I love in the hospital. They're on their deathbed. They have a half a day, maybe a full day, to live. And I'd really like you to come by and see them. And, and I don't do anything about it until their body's already in the morgue. You'd probably be wildly disappointed in me. And rightfully so, you should be. And, and yet, this is what we see from Jesus here. Jesus is being informed that his friend is about to die. And, and he delays. He delays in coming. And why would he do such a thing? Why would... Why would Jesus postpone His coming to at least give them some solace of His presence? Well, here's the reason why. The reason why is that in the midst of what might be a colossal watershed experience of pain in your life, Jesus is delaying and making His presence known to you for two reasons. I want you to see what these two reasons are. Because, one, of His deep love for you. He's delaying because of His deep love for you. And number two, because He desires above everything else in your life, the things that you desire are peripheral to this, He desires that your faith would take deep, established, meaningful roots. That it would go down and it would enjoy His living water. What that means is this. In the times of your darkness, Jesus has not retired. Jesus is not on vacation drinking Bloody Marys in the Caribbean somewhere. Jesus 
is using this for the sake of your growth and enjoyment in Him to wean you off of taking solace in your circumstances in life, to show you in a way in which you may have never seen before, never in any meaningful way experienced, a depth of His love that that escapes anything that you could put into words. He's trying to show you your absolute need to be absolutely dependent upon Him in all things. That's what He's showing you here. That's what He's... That's what he's trying to show Mary and Martha and Lazarus and everybody who sees him here to show how beautiful and delightful and glorious he actually is in the midst of ugly suffering. Jesus' delay in coming to you, my friends, is purposeful. Take solace in that. It is purposeful. He has a purpose behind all of this. Behind all of the superficial and temporary stuff that we spend so much of our lives on, partially out of necessity, partially because that's the way that we're wired, all of that prevents us from dealing with the serious issues of life in many respects. But Jesus is trying to get us to deal with those serious issues, to ask ultimate questions, to ask things like, does God really care? Does He even really exist? Does God really love me? Is he faithful? There's that famous verse, God works all things for the good who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Is that true? Do I really believe that? Do I really believe in the power and the grace and the love of Jesus Christ? Or am I just someone who goes and occupies a spot in a pew every Sunday because it's the respectable thing to do? Do I believe this? That's what happens when the pressure is applied to your life, when the crisis comes, when the pain and the suffering comes. Those are the important questions. Important questions in life consist of what you're going to do about your child's schooling and how you're going to care for your aging parents and what you're going to do about your financial future. Those are important questions, but these are even more important questions. Coming to terms with the reality of who God is, of what His gospel is, of how that applies to your life. And that is why Jesus delays here. That's why He's delaying. In verses 22 through 24, we see it. And in verse 25, this is what Jesus says when Martha comes to her. And they're talking about Lazarus being resurrected. This is what he says. Jesus says in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And so, after Jesus stands at the tomb and weeps and burns with anger, he prays to his Father and he gives thanks and he says in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And out he comes. Out he comes. He comes out of the tomb, alive and well, just as you and I are alive as well now. See, the reason why death is so evil is because it, it separates us 
permanently from those that we love. It's such a permanent thing. There's no reversal to it. It, it, All that we've ever known and experienced in life is is taken away from us when we physically die. And we're never going to experience on this earth again. Death happens to every person because it's, it's part of our nature. It's part of the only guarantee other than taxes that you have in your life, that you will die. Everybody experiences that at some point. But the reality is, is that we're not just physical people. We're spiritual people too. And Jesus says to us in His Word that by nature we are spiritually dead. And we are bound for a tormenting tomb forever. We are spiritually dead. That is our nature. But see, there's hope for the Christian. There's hope for the one who has stopped trusting in himself anymore. Who has come and said, I am a needy person. I am at the end of myself. I am sinful and I am broken and I cannot bring anything to you. I cannot bring my works. I cannot bring anything that I can accomplish to you. I can only stand upon the grace of Jesus Christ, upon His work for me, not my work for Him. And His promises to me that He gives me in the Gospel. And when I receive that, I have the hope of glory. I have the hope of an inheritance that will never perish or spoil or fade. And a place where death is completely foreign. Where suffering is completely unknown and unexperienced in any way. That's the hope that we have. And the reason why we have that hope is because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He proved that death could not hold Him down. See, He died. And He endured the curse of His Father. And the Father literally turns His face away from the Son and gives Him hell. Why? Because your sin and my sin and the sin of all of His people in all places, at all times, gets concentrated in that one person of Jesus Christ, and it is heinous to the Father. You think Lazarus' tomb stunk? Jesus was a stenchy aroma to the Father because of the, of not of His sin, of your sin that He took upon Himself. And He died. He gets put in a tomb. He's wrapped in the same kind of burial clothes that Lazarus is, is wrapped in. But three days later, He rises again. And in that resurrection, He's communicating something to you about your sin. He's communicating to you that sin and death cannot hold Him down. That He has conquered it. That death has no victory or sting over Him. And that He has risen again and ascended to the Father and is in glory And you know what that means for you, Christian? It means that you have the hope of laying hold of everything that Jesus did. That resurrection was your resurrection. If you're united to Him by faith, if you have rested upon Him alone, He's risen again for you. Death cannot hold you down. Sin can no longer condemn you. That is why Paul says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. You have none of that condemnation. You just have nothing but the grace and love of God to you in the gospel. And that's what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about being the resurrection and the life. 
And it gives you great hope in the midst of suffering. Because it tells you that when Alzheimer's takes your husband, when heart disease takes your parents, when tragedy takes a child, when natural old age takes somebody, that if that person is resting in Christ alone, they have not lost their battle with life. They have won it. They have not lost a battle to cancer. They've won it. Because they're resting in Christ alone. They're resting in the hope that He gives to us. He's taken our hopelessness. A, a, a couple of, of days ago, John Cheney gave me the, the WLOX video about Hurricane Katrina. So I was going to watch 20 minutes of it. I watched three hours straight of it. The most impressionable part of that whole video, not just the images, was the 911 calls. Hearing someone call in on 911, the operator answers, and the person just screams. The, the, the people are crying out for help, and the operator says, there's, there's nothing that we can do to get any emergency personnel to you. And it gripped me because it was total hopelessness coming out of these people. It was total hopelessness. They, they saw that, that there was no way out of this. And my friends, that's where you were outside of Christ. And if you've yet to believe Him, that's where you are. Totally hopeless. And Jesus comes as the resurrection and the life. And He comes to you in the midst of your total hopelessness and He says, Darren, come out! Katie, come out! David, come out! Come out! Come to Me! I'm here to save you! That's what He does. That's what a beautiful Savior that you have. And you want to know what the cash value of that is in this life? When you leave here today, what hill of beans difference it makes for you? It means this. Paul says that in Christ we are more than conquerors. If you're a conqueror, that means that your sin has been defeated. That it no longer condemns you. That all of that stuff no longer condemns you. But you know what you are if you are more than a conqueror? It means that the suffering and the pain and the effects of sin in a broken world in this life actually come to you and are slaves to you. It, they serve your good. They serve you. Those sufferings are in service to you, to your good. Jesus promises you that because He says that He will work all things, all things, everything, for the good of those who love God and have been called according to His purpose. That is good news. Do you believe it? Let's pray. Father, this is a passage about the brokenness about the ugliness of life 
that we can't even make sense out of. That not one person here can escape. And it's a message about hope. About taking the utter hopelessness and the utter depravity of our lives and the fact that we were bound for nothing but condemnation justly brought upon ourselves by ourselves and yet You come and make us Your children. And You do so because You died. You took our sin and You rose again and conquered it. You've liberated us from the domain of sin and darkness. From its power over us eternally. And even though we still see it and we still experience it in this life, we have Christ in us, the hope of glory, and we have the resurrection and the life, and we are new creations in You. So let us believe that. Let us not play lip service to that, but let that change the reality of our life as we leave here today and as we go and do life in our families and do life in our jobs and do life in our relationships. Do that for the sake of making yourself look beautiful. Do that for the sake of people.